Well, hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're very thankful to have you uh, joining us in worship uh, this Sunday morning, whether you're doing so here in person, you're, you're watching online, or maybe you're listening uh, later on. We're just uh, thankful to have you here, uh, studying God's Word with us, um, worshiping God together, uh, fellowshipping with each other, just enjoying God's presence and worshiping Him like we do every Sunday. Um, just, just glad to have you here doing that with us. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll get into our message today. Lord, thank you that... Um, you are, you are with us, Lord. We might feel abandoned at times, like we're going to be talking about in the sermon, um, in this world that we live in, which uh, can be difficult a lot of times, but you, you are with us, and as we'll see, you have a hope and a future for us, God. I just pray that you would, uh, you would remind us of that this morning, um, and, and you would uh, uh, help that to stay with us even as we leave this place. Um, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in uh, the book of Jeremiah. We actually have, I think, two weeks left, including today. So we're, we're wrapping this up. We're going to be starting a new uh, series in the fall. Um, Abby mentioned that, Sermon on the Mount. Very excited about that one. We've been kind of planning that one for a while. But uh, we've got to wrap up Jeremiah first. And so we're going to be doing that here the next uh, couple weeks. Now, the, the series title is Build and Plant. We've been talking a lot about how God is uh, working through the, the word of Jeremiah to build and plant in the lives of the people of Judah. And we're asking what, as we study that, as we look, what it, uh, we look at what it looked like for God to do that uh, through the prophet Jeremiah in the lives of Judah, like how can we see where God is maybe doing the same for us as well? And if you remember, in the very first sermon, we talked about how before God uh, really builds and plants. He tells Jeremiah, first of all, we're going to do some uprooting and tearing down. We're going to get rid of some weeds and some other things that are kind of uh, popping up in the garden that are making it difficult for God to sort of grow, uh, to build and plant uh, what it is that he wants in his world through his people. And um, the book of Jeremiah has a lot of, lot of uprooting and tearing down. So there's a lot of that in the book, and we, we kind of leaned into that for a lot of the series. But we are trying to sort of end by really examining what is the build and plant aspect of this. Where is God building and planting uh, in Jeremiah? Where do we find that taking place? And we're kind of really focusing in on that um, here last week, today, and then next week. Um, and as we've done so, we've been kind of leaning into this concept or this picture of a group of exiles um, and, and the picture of, of exile more generally. And so last week we looked at that from one lens, but this week I want to look at it from a bit of a different lens of, of this idea of exile. All right, so uh, to do that, I want to talk a little bit about like what it looks like to be a visitor to another country. Um, I know sometimes like people can be really like, uh, insensitive or just unthinking. They really are not very good uh, at touring other countries. And Americans can be some of the worst of these kinds of people. Um, and so I have a couple of funny, funny, maybe more embarrassing or kind of like angering <laughs> anecdotes uh, that I found online about Americans in other countries. So here we go. Here's a few of them. Okay, while working at a McDonald's, to some uh, native person, whatever country this was, I overheard an American tourist tell his family that they were going to eat some good food, not foreign garbage, while they were in line waiting uh, to order. Okay, so, I don't know, if you go to another country just to eat McDonald's, like, you should just stay home. I really don't, I really don't know, like, what the point is, okay? All right, here's another one. Uh, in Australia, an American shook a koala out of a tree at a wildlife park. That's pretty sad, yeah. 
Um, I put a picture of a koala there just to make it extra hard to hear that. Okay. Uh, okay, South African here saying that Americans tend to have this habit where they climb out of their vehicle in the middle of a game reserve, get attacked by a wild animal because they want to get closer or try to pet it and then cry about it. I thought people that come from the country that has grizzly bears and mountain lions would be a bit more cautious around wild animals. I think that's a good assumption, really. Um, okay, a <laughs> couple more here. I'm an American, but I was uh, visiting England and touring the Tower of London. There was a cannon be, uh, behind a rope with a do not touch or climb sign. And this is in English, so this person knew how to read it. The American woman lifted the rope and told her kid, maybe seven years old, to go sit on the cannon so she could take a picture. The kid protested and said the sign said no. The woman said she didn't care and ordered her kid to do it or she ground them. <laughs> okay. All right, last one here. I saw an American father with young kids in tow explain to an elderly Japanese man why they just had to drop the bomb on Hiroshima, no way around it, at the Peace Museum in Hiroshima. Yes. <laughs> okay. These are pretty obvious examples of what not to do as a foreigner in another country, right? You know, just, it shows like a, a profound lack of like sensitivity or wisdom on how to act in another country, right? And so like if you were annoyed or you cringed at that, like you should have, okay? We should just kind of know, like have a sense like that we should act differently than this. Like good visitors to a place uh, that they have never been to or they're foreigner or they're minority in should just, they should have some wisdom for how to act, well, like, you know, foreign in that place, right? I think that's kind of common sense. Today I want to talk about how we can avoid being for, you know, poor foreigners or not having sensitivity or wisdom in our own exile. Okay, so what do I mean by exile, right? For, what do I mean by the fact that we're foreigners here? Well, there's actually lots of biblical imagery that paints Christians as in a sense, exiles, living in a land that is not our own, we're, we're scattered among the nations, we're awaiting God's action to, to bring our home, which is God's kingdom and his presence uh, to bear here on earth, okay? So here's a few examples. First Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to God's elect, exile scattered. He opens the book up by addressing these multiple churches that he's writing to and calling them all exiles, Okay? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, we are Christ's ambassadors. All right, in John 18.36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Okay, so all of these are ways to describe something and the, and the people that are part of it as, you know, not living in the land that they represent or that they make their home that they're citizens of. Okay, so it says you live in one place, but really you are citizens of and represent some other place. So we as Christians are fundamentally, in our, our base identity, people who belong to the place where God's presence dwells, the place where his, his glory, his love are everywhere, right? And yet this world is not that place right now. It is not a world that is flooded with his presence, and so we are not at home. We are not living in our home right now. Ephesians 2 uh, tells us that we are living in the domain of another king. We're living in like foreign territory that God has rescued us from, but we still make our home up here. 
Okay, we still are living in this place right now despite the fact that we are citizens of somewhere else. And so I think Christians, we should feel out of place in this world, really in all parts of it, right? We should feel a sort of tension, like we're, we're puzzle pieces that just, you know, are trying to be squeezed into a puzzle that we just don't really fit in, okay? And so we're, we're kind of making the, the best we can out of it, but we're really aware, like this is not the puzzle we're supposed to be a part of. Okay, like a loyal Israelite living in Babylon would. Now, I think we can get far too comfortable. We can kind of forget this reality. And I would, I would challenge you if, you, if following Jesus never leaves you feeling a sort of tension, right? Because the norms of following Jesus, the values, the, the source of life, the way of seeing the world are really alien. They're really different than so many around us then it might be a, a reason to sort of just reconsider. Like, you know, am I actually doing this in a way that really truly sees my identity as being in the kingdom? And maybe we, you know, maybe we feel this exile a little bit more keenly than at other times, right? As, as people are less and less interested in the church, you know, a lot of people are leaving the church or just kind of uninterested in it. We, in a sense, we can really start to feel this minor, like that we're in this minority community a, a little bit more, you know, more and more than maybe we would have in the past. And you can like it or not, but it's just kind of the reality, okay? And I think it's, it's, we're going to talk about this, it's wrong for us to try and sort of, you know, recapture being like a Christian nation or something like that. That's not worth our time. I think it's okay for us to just admit we are minorities. We are not sort of the, the, the dominant place in this world because we're not living in our home, and that's okay. That's actually the way it's supposed to be. So now let's try to live in a way that, you know, where we don't look like unthinking tourists. We don't look like people who don't have uh, wisdom in what it looks like for us to do that. And when we really get ourselves into this mindset, I think, and, and take it really seriously, it starts to make it possible for us to receive the word that Jeremiah has for us today. Okay, so today, I want to talk about what it looks like for us to live as a God-honoring minority. All right? Um, it's about our conduct living in exile in the sense that I'm talking about here today, based on Jeremiah's letter to the exiles that we started talking about last week. Now, if you remember a little, little bit of a rewind, like I said, we've been kind of talking about this community of people. They've been taken uh, out of their homeland, out of Jerusalem, out of Judah. They've been shipped off to Babylon, and they're supposed to live there now. Now, God had told Jeremiah that his future was going to run through his, the, these people, and so he has a, a plan and a hope and a future for them. God is, is, is working for their good. Okay, so so much of what is taking place here in the, the, the book of Jeremiah is, is about this exile community. And, and God tells Jeremiah to write a letter to them. Jeremiah still lives in Jerusalem at this time, but he wants him to write a letter to be sent to them there, which kind of tells them this is what it's going to look like for you to live in this exile. And so this letter, it's not written to us. It is written to that exile community, but I think it contains uh, some principles for us and how we live as exiles. And I'm, I'm, not making any, you know, I'm not making anything up here that is, is new. Right? A lot of people have observed this chapter as being sort of fa- fundamental for how we sort of think about how we live in our own uh, sort, of, sort of exile here now, in the here and now. So I want to make four observations for us today based off of this letter, okay? And they are this. Buy, don't rent. Seek shalom. Be not afraid and stay distinct. 
So for the sermon today, I just want to walk through these four ideas. We'll walk through all four of them, talk about the, the, the passage in the letter that kind of uh, gives that to us and just unpack what it means, all right? So first off, buy, don't rent. Jeremiah 29.5, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, Okay, this is the first thing he tells them to do. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. John Golden Gay, is a commentator, says that such actions indicate settling down for a while. It takes time for trees to grow and bear fruit. In the West, we might similarly speak of buying a house rather than renting. All right? you, don't, you don't live somewhere that you don't plan to be for a while, um, uh, w- without renting, right? I know a lot of us probably have been in that stage where like renting somewhere right now or we have in the past because we think, I just seem to be here for a little bit and so I don't want to put all that work into buying a house and maintaining it and all this stuff. But when you really want to settle down, you buy a house. You, you kind of, there's some permanence to living there and that's what uh, Jeremiah is telling the people here. Now notice this, I highlighted it in, in, in the, on the slide that build and plant imagery is popping up here, okay? That kind of pops up throughout the book. We named the whole series this because of that, okay? But notice how it, it kind of weaves its way into this description of what Judah is supposed to do here. So for these people, they're wondering, well, where is God going to bless us? What is it going to look like for us to be the people that God's future uh, runs through and for him to build and plant, like Jeremiah has been saying um, in, in our lives, in, in what God is doing here? What is it going to look like for God to do that? Okay, well, here you go. You are to trust that God will build and plant by you building and planting in this foreign land, in this place that you didn't plan to be or you might not choose to be, but as you build and plant there, God is going to build and plant through you. Now he goes further. He says in verse 6, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Okay, so he's saying here, going further, these people, you know, they're going to want to do the thing, that, the thing that people do, right? Get married, have kids, settle down, but they're probably going to wait. They're probably like, well, we won't do that stuff in Babylon. We're going to wait for God to bring us back. And God says, no, 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 don't hold off on that stuff, okay? Don't wait to marry and have kids until you get home. Get married and raise your kids here, let them actually grow up as inhabitants of the city of Babylon. It's pretty radical, okay, but it, it, it's what God is calling them to do and saying, I will build and plant in you through this. So settle in. You don't have to always like it. In fact, you probably won't sometimes. Like, you probably will find this to be really difficult, okay? But acknowledge this is your reality. Don't fight it. Instead, figure out what it looks like to embrace it, to get comfortable, Okay? Don't just be, for us, if we're looking for our principle here, don't just be looking for heaven. Don't just be waiting for that. Even if we, yes, do eagerly anticipate it. We are excited about what God is going to do in the future. We, we are happy that God is going to do something about sin and evil and vindicate those who follow Jesus. Okay? But don't find uh, yourself living only for that. Okay? Don't find living in the here and now as unimportant. Okay, figure out what it means for you to get comfortable here. This is where you belong right now, and it's okay. It's tough. It's really hard some days, but God wants us there. Okay? And there's a bit of a paradox here. We, you know, kind of going back to last week's sermon a little bit, um, it's in these kinds of difficult settings throughout 
so much of Scripture that we find God working in the greatest ways, in the sort of challenges of exile, in the place that is not comfortable, that we find God actually doing his greatest work. So when you think about it from that lens, it's not that surprising that God would be telling them to do this because so much of what he does is in places like this. And he's setting them up to do another work similar to this. Now, what does it look like for us to actually live there? What should be our ethic when we're there? Maybe you would say, you know, uh, it should be self-protection, right? Okay, we're fine, we're stuck here, but let's just make sure we, we protect ourselves as best as possible, right? No, it's not that. Well, maybe I should just focus on having the best life possible then. You know, like, I'd be known as the person that God has blessed because I'm so happy all the time. I look better than all the other Babylonian people. It's not that either, okay? It's seek shalom. Seek shalom. In verse 7, Jeremiah says, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So when you're settled, when you're comfortable, when, you're, when you have come to terms with the fact that this is where you're going to be, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, not just yourself. Okay? Now the word peace and prosperity here, in the English, it gets, it, in this translation, it gets split up into two. But it's actually just word in Hebrew, that the Hebrew word shalom. And the reason it gets split up into a couple words is because it's kind of hard for us to like translate that biblical concept into English. Okay? But basically, it's this sort of flourishing ecosystem of God's creation when it's humming on all cylinders, when like, like a symphony, everything is working like it's supposed to, and everyone is partaking in that. Right? This, is th- this, this idea is what God created the world to be when he first established us in this world. And it means being connected to God. It means being living, uh, living by his wisdom in a way where everything is just, it's just vibing. <laughs> you know, it's just working like it's supposed to. And that shalom gets sort of turned into a, a productive and beneficial energy for everyone who comes into contact with it. Okay, it's this big concept uh, throughout scripture. Okay? And this is fundamentally what God c- desired for creation to be. Right? Think about the Garden of Eden. Right? It was a garden. Right? It was lush, it was green, it was full of life, easy to see. This is what it looked like when God created everything and made it to be what it was supposed to be. You could just, life was brimming out of it. Now, shalom has been cracked by sin, and that's the challenge here. And it's especially true of a place like Babylon, which complicates this all exponentially, but it doesn't mean it's not the, still the purpose of creation. It doesn't mean it's still not the purpose of God is to restore that shalom in some way. And so one of the main characteristics, I think, of being part of God's people, no matter where we go, no matter where we're living, is that shalom follows us like a shadow. It's something that God's people are known for wherever they go is that shalom comes with them. And so that's what this is saying. Okay? Now that's a great privilege but it's also a responsibility, and I think that's how Jeremiah is framing it here, to ask what it means for us and the communities we're part of to be people and places of shalom, where that is following after us, where the peace and the prosperity of the city is on people's minds, and we're working for it because it's what God desires us to do. Now, we might look around. The people of Judah probably did this. They probably looked around and they said, 
man, this place, Babylon, does not deserve to have shalom. Like, why would we be working for that? This place is awful, okay? And the truth is, yeah, Babylon sucked. Like, if you know anything about Babylon, you know it was not a great place unless you were Babylonian, maybe, to, to live. Or to, you were not happy that they existed, probably, okay? And that's why there's this, this tension here. Babylon, it's into a lot of stuff that God tells Israel to stay away from. And they're conquerors, right? They're, they're no one's friend. And as you kind of go throughout Scripture, you find that the, the, the name Babylon and that image for the city itself kind of becomes a figure for evil and corruption and opposition to God in Scripture. And a, a really famous place for this is the book of Revelation, right? It literally becomes sort of the, the, the image for all that is opposing God's purposes for what he's trying to do in Jesus in the book of Revelation, all right? So it's not a good thing, right? That tension should be there. But I think it's interesting still that we pay attention to what Jeremiah is saying here, okay? There's nothing wrong despite all that, despite the fact that God had even said, I'm going to judge Babylon eventually here, okay? They're not going to get off the hook for what they have done for you, okay? But despite all that, God is saying there is nothing wrong here with Babylon experiencing the shalom of God. I think that's really interesting, Okay, we have, you, you, Israel, and now us as people living these principles out, we have no reason to withhold God's shalom from the world, okay? God will judge Babylon, and he will judge the world. He will judge evil in his world, okay? That is true, but it's not our job to do that by withholding shalom or trying to hoard it for ourselves, as we li- live in the midst of a place where there is this tension, where we find ourselves living in the middle of evil, it's still in our best interest, okay? There's a lot of practicality to this, okay? Um, have you ever heard the phrase, like, the rising tide lifts all boats, right? If the, if the harbor rises, like, it's not just one boat that's going to experience it. All the boats are going to experience it. So it's not a bad thing, right? It's not a zero-sum game that we need to see ourselves playing. That's what this is kind of saying. You will be better off if you work with Babylon to create this environment of shalom, Okay, you'll win, and Babylon will win, and that's okay. It's not our job to, to seek self-protectionism, uh, to be very individualized and self-focused, to see our sort of rights as being uh, needing to be established above all else. Okay? To hoard shalom for ourselves as if there's only like a finite amount of it. Right? Like, like God's peace is limited. Like think about what we're saying about God if we think we, need to, we should be withholding this shalom from the world around us. We should be protecting it for ourselves. We shouldn't let anyone else get to experience it. Like, you know, it's like, what are we saying about how we view God? Like, are we saying we think he, he only can produce enough of this for a little group of people? No, he is saying that, like, we can experience shalom and we can be agents of shalom in the world around us. And it's not a bad thing if they win because we're winning. Just because, yes, the Babylonians are not God's people, and yes, they are in many ways legitimately evil, them flourishing doesn't mean you need to be losing, and vice versa, God is saying. Hostility and just trying to sabotage or hate the people that you live around is a mindset that God never endorses here, and we find very clearly in Jesus' ministry as well. We can be aware of the way that the culture we're in is, yes, in many ways dark, is many ways fallen. It's cracked that shalom. It does not seek it out naturally. 
but we can still desire it to experience that shalom as we live it out ourselves. Now, a good place to start when we're kind of thinking about what it looks like for actually to, to practically embody this, I mean, there, we, really, we should be looking at all areas of our life, but one I want to focus on here today is where we probably spend the majority of our time, okay? And that's our work or our, or our vocation, whatever that looks like. Okay, so Jeremiah tells us in, in, in earlier in chapter 29 here that it's the priests and the prophets and other people, which is not a very helpful description to describe who's all being taken off into exile. But in chapter 24, we're told the skilled workers and the artisans also went there. And when we look outside the Bible, we look at outside historical sources that would, they would tell us who would, who would be typically involved in a sort of mass deportation like this. So here's, here's a list, all right? From, from one source. Physicians, diviners, goldsmiths, cabinet makers, charioteers, drivers, bowmen, shield bearers, veterinarians, singers, bakers, brewers, fishermen, cartwrights, shipwrights, and blacksmiths. You can start a whole city with those people, right? You got a lot of, you got a lot of work that you could get done with a group of people who have those skills or vocations, okay? And so start to think about, like, how much good could this group of people have done to produce shalom in the city of Babylon? I mean, quite a bit of it, right? Quite a bit of it if they were actually intentional to do it. They had a lot of uh, skill and opportunity to do what God is asking them to do here because of what it is that they uh, had skill or, 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 or uh, giftings in. And it's the same for us, right? We all have some job or vocation that is part of the vast web of what makes society run, right? All of us fit in some way into this giant ecosystem of the city we live in and the, and the, the nation we live in, the world we live in, okay? All these things sort of connect to each other. And I'll say this, for us at Rest City, it's important for us to sort of help all of us to think about what it looks like for us to, to think through our vocation and how it can contribute to the common good, to the shalom that God is calling us uh, to, uh, to, to, to spread throughout the world, throughout the things that we have an opportunity to touch. Okay? We can do a lot of good for the city through our work, even if it feels mundane, even if at times we're angry with our work and the types of things we come into contact with. Uh, in our vacation, or if we can't always see the, the direct benefits of it. I remember one time I, I had given a talk, or I'd helped give a talk on sort of like um, how God was, you know, we're talking about kind of the, the future, what God is doing in the future, and we talked a lot about how his ultimate plan is to, to redeem creation. We're not going to live in a, a disembodied spiritual, you know, heaven someday. Like, the ultimate uh, landing place for us all is going to be a redeemed creation. We're going to be living as, you know, actual people in the actual world. It's just going to be redeemed. It's going to be different. It's no longer going to be cracked by sin any longer. And so we should have that view in sort of how we go about our daily lives, not seeing, uh, you know, the world as a bad place, but seeing it as something that God wants to redeem. And I was talking to a friend afterwards who was, he worked in an industry that he was just so sick of. He hated it. And he, he literally said, like, I just some days want to see the whole thing burn to the ground. Okay. I get, I, I think you probably feel that sometimes with the work that you do. I wouldn't be surprised. That's not a bad thing to feel that sometimes, to just feel so burdened and, and frustrated by what you see taking place sometimes, okay? I think that's, that's us feeling the tension, right, of, of this world, feeling the challenge of living in this sort of paradox, right, of where we're supposed to do this. It's not supposed to be easy, okay? But I, I think what God is telling us here is that he wants us 
us to have his heart to see a, a broken and hurting world redeemed, to, to see it running at least as close as we can help it to run um, in terms of bringing shalom to it. Now, unfortunately, when we don't have a vision for shalom in our exile, it's, if we can't find ourselves getting there, it's often, I think, because fear has overtaken us. Okay, so that leads us to this third observation here, do, be not afraid. In verses 8 and 9, uh, Jeremiah says, or God is saying through Jeremiah, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Okay? It's easy, I think, to act impulsively or unthinkingly about our state as exiles and let fear of something that is different and might not view us positively uh, make us afraid. Okay? It would be very understandable for Judah to be feeling this in Babylon. But here's what God is saying. I don't want you to live out of that fear and let it create within you an antagonistic mindset toward Babylon. I think that's probably what these prophets are referring to here. Okay? Based on other stuff we see prophets saying in the book of Jeremiah, and we did a whole kind of sermon on that uh, earlier on here, so it, it makes sense that they'd be saying some of these kinds of things. But I think they're probably saying to the exiles, hey, be ready to resist. Like, look for moments to strike back and keep your bags packed because God is going to bring us back someday. That's what God would do. He would never make us actually stay here. He's going to do something to, to destroy these evil Babylonians and set us free here any day now, okay? I think that when Jeremiah says, like, these are the dreams that you encourage these prophets to have, I think that's what he's talking about, okay? These people are afraid, they want to hear that. They want to hear these prophets and God tell them that. They didn't want to have to hear that they were going to have to learn to get along with Babylon. They are going to be there for a little while. And so these, these prophets, again, like we talked about in this other sermon, I think they're just, they're making their prophecy, their prediction based on what looks good in public opinion. Hey, they know this would sell. And so they're telling the people this, cause, and fear is good for business. Boy, do we know that to be true right? Fear is good for business, and so if they're saying this, it's going to make people want to come hear what they have to say. Like I said, yes, culture does feel like it might be changing for us quite a bit in a way that does, doesn't always make us, the church, you know, feel comfortable, right? We might feel some fear. And I think there's always going to be like a subsection of us that, you know, postures itself out of that fear in a sort of permanent hostility towards the world around us. Okay? And I think we see this, right? Many Christians are often afraid that God isn't watching over his own world, word, that he's not calling us to seek the shalom uh, for those around us. Um, they're going to, you know, maybe turn to tur uh, pulling political levers, right, to try to assert dominance over the rest of the culture and turn to, you know, sell our souls to political candidates who promise to fight for us and restore us, right? I think we've seen a lot of that in our lives. We call it the culture wars, right? I think the irony with all that, though, is that when the church does this, we end up looking a lot like the culture around us. I think that's kind of the irony. In being afraid of the culture and trying to fight back against it, we actually become products of it because we start to fight using the tools of the culture, right? We start to use the methods, try to accomplish the same thing that the culture around us might be trying to do, right? Domination, elimination of a threat, right? 
looking out for our good above the good of anything else, right? These are, these are the kind of things that God is calling Israel to do differently than the culture around us, okay? Don't fear Babylon. Don't respond back to Babylon in Babylonian ways. That's not going to work. You're just going to find yourself dragged into the mud if you do that, I think is what God is saying here. And when we think about it from that angle, it gets us to why uh, number four here, I think, is so important for us. Stay distinct. Okay? Jeremiah 29, 7. Uh, pray to the Lord for it. I'll unpack that here in a second. But uh, historically, we find, when we look at these people who lived in, in Babylon, we know that they took it very serious that they remained distinct. Okay? They saw it as very important for them to retain their identity as people who worshipped God, who followed after him, who were different than the world around them. And that identity we find, you know, even at the time of Jesus is still very prevalent. And honestly, like, it has made the Jewish people today very much what they are. This sort of, like, uh, wanting to remain distinct, like, uh, finding it important to retain their identity and values. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that's, a, that's it's an important thing here that we can learn from as we figure out what it looks like for us to live in exile, too, is to remain distinct, okay? Now, we find this here in, in verse 7. Going back to this verse here, I think one of the main ways that God says to work for the shalom of Babylon is to do something that's very distinct and unique for the Jewish people. It's to pray to the God of all creation on its behalf, to ask him to, to flood Babylon with his shalom. This would have been very different than what the Babylonian people around them were doing. Obviously, they would have prayed to entirely different gods, right? And, and, and we, we know this. We know this about Babylon historically. They relished in their might, in their own power, in their dominance, in conquering all the nations around them, uh, in building one of the greatest cities the world has ever known. Some people still say it's like the most impressive city that ever existed, Babylon. When we really look back on it, it was filled with multiple wonders of the ancient world. If you ever heard about the wonders of the ancient world, Babylon actually had two of them. It's a pretty big deal. It saw itself as the center of human existence, of time itself, as the greatest people to ever exist. This is how Babylon routinely talked about themselves. And so Judah's coming into exile in the peak of all this. The king who took them in exile, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, was like the, the greatest conqueror in the history of Babylon. Okay, interesting side note though. About 70 years later, it was all gone. About 70 years later, all the stuff that Babylon had amassed for itself went away. Its pride and its inability to maintain what it had built led to its downfall. A great nation getting drunk on its own magnificence and then fading from history is literally a tale as old as time, right? I mean, how often have we found that to be the case throughout history? Now think, of, let's go back to prayer here, okay? Think about what prayer instills in those who do it regularly. This people of Israel who would have been praying to God for the good of the city around them. There's an implied acknowledgement in prayer that shalom only truly comes as a gift from God. Okay, not by our might alone, right, like Babylon, Babylon would have relied on, but by the creator who every good and perfect gift comes from. 
Now, none of this means, all right, don't hear me creating some, like, dichotomy between, you know, just praying on the one hand and doing, you know, seeking out good deeds on the other hand, as if they're sort of in conflict with one another, right? Um, our good action, our deeds, our wisdom, our actually getting out and doing this work does contribute to shalom, right? We don't have prayer on the one hand and on our, our deeds on the other hand, okay? Get that out of your head. They go together, okay? But once we start to over-rely on our works, on our ingenuity, the works of our hands, our own wisdom, we stop being distinct and we start looking just like Babylon, okay? And when the works of our hands inevitably fail, as always happens, right, when Babylon itself falls, we find ourselves getting very cynical, okay? And we see this. There's actually been a lot of studies done on this recently, even in our own time. Uh, cynicism or nihilism, if that's a word you're familiar with, it just kind of you know, refers to hopelessness, to kind of feeling a constant despair, a lack of hope about the future, right? It's actually growing in America quite a bit. A lot of studies show us that you know, you, so oftentimes you have one generation, they think, we're going to change the world, and then they don't change the world, and then the next generation sees that and they think, well, what's the point then? Like, you guys actually made it worse. You guys thought you were going to fix all the problems in the world and, like, now it, now it kind of, it's even worse off in a lot of ways. Like, and it just has this way of making people uh, full of despair or cynicism. And so we actually do see this, especially in kind of in younger generations nowadays. Okay? Here's yet one more way in which our distinctiveness is actually good for the city around us. And it's this. Judah is supposed to be a people of hope. Okay, it's right at the center of this passage. It's the most famous verse in this passage, by far, one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Okay, Judah, and now us, as people who are living uh, out the, this story, who find ourselves living in, this, in, in a similar type of exile, we are people who believe no matter how dark it might seem, God is active in history. God is sustaining us by his grace and he's bending the arc of history itself towards the restoration of all things through Jesus. And we get to be a part of that when we follow after him. Hope should be a thing that sets us apart because we believe Jesus has been raised again and God is still in the business of making new life. He has a hope and a future for us, even when we're in our exile, even when we feel the, the tension or the paradox of what God is calling us to, even when we find that shalom just is really hard to produce a lot of times. God is still has a hope and a future for us, and that is going to set us apart and make us uh, really important in the societies we're in because we can combat both the, the pride that comes with over-reliance on our own works and the cynicism and despair and nihilism that comes when those things fail. Okay, we have the answer to both of those. Lots of Christians, there's so many, I thought about giving some examples and I just thought, there's like, there's so many of them, right? Like that, that, that show that when Christians embrace this distinct hope, like they've been able to do incredible things in the cities that they're a part of right? They've looked at a world that is seriously lacking in shalom and, and living in cities full of, of sin and all of the consequences of it, all the hurt and the pain and destruction that comes from all of that. And, and they, they, they've said, we're going to take this seriously. We're going to have hope. We're going to pray. We're not going to be afraid. We're going to settle in and we're going to seek shalom 
in our city, whatever that looks like, right? And they've done it through churches, they've started ministries and nonprofits, they've gotten involved uh, through their work in really taking this seriously. They've challenged governments to act more just. They've sought out the least of these in love. They've taken this seriously. They've asked, how do we make this practical in the city that we live in? And some of them are really famous. Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, William Wilberforce, right? Famous people throughout history who have sort of changed the course of history that we look back on as some of the most important people in our, in our history did it out of, a, out of a hope and a future, out of a distinctive hope in who God was and what he was doing in the world. Okay? But most of the people who have done this aren't famous. You have probably heard, you know, not heard the vast majority of the names of these people. They're people like us. Right? People in churches, in cities that are unnoticed oftentimes by the world around us, but taking it seriously, remaining distinct, faithfully sitting in, not being afraid, and seeking shalom. And we're all called to be part of that. Okay? So as a, as a church, I'm imploring you as we close here, to, let's take this seriously. Okay? God is going to bless us. God has a hope and a future for us as we do this. Just like the exile people uh, were the people that God was working his future through in their tension of exile, the paradox of it, he's going to work his future through us as well as we seek to live this out. Let's, uh, let's pray here to close and enter a time of worship and communion, okay? So every week we take communion. Uh, communion is a chance for us to remember that shalom ultimately comes through Jesus, Okay, when we partake in Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for us, we're reminding ourselves of what it took for God to unleash the hope of his restoration of all things onto earth. It was Jesus giving himself up, dying on a cross, taking our sin and the sin of the world upon himself, but then being raised again from the dead to show that God had defeated it and to let us know that we can have hope as well. So we take it every Sunday to remind ourselves, to tune ourselves like instruments back to that reality. And so we invite you to come forward and take uh, communion with us while we do worship today. You don't have to be a, a normal attender or member at Res City. We just ask that you, you are a follower of Jesus if you do. I'm going to pray and then we'll enter into that time of worship. Lord, we thank you that you are with us, even though we find ourselves in the tension and paradox of living in exile, of, of being ambassadors, of being representatives of, of a kingdom that is not of this place, Lord. You are with us. You are letting us know that we are safe to settle in, to, to buy and not rent, uh, that you give us shalom through your Son so that we may be agents of it in the world around us. You make it so we don't have to be afraid, and you help us be distinct by reminding us that we can rely on you. You are the one who gives shalom as a gift to the world, and you give us a hope and a future because of it, Lord. I pray that we would be inspired by that as we leave this place and inevitably go back to what are probably difficult places of tension, whether it's in our work, with, uh, in our neighborhoods, with, with friends or family, whatever other spaces we find ourselves living in the tension of this, Lord, that you would remind us that you give us a hope and a future. And ultimately, you will make one, things new one day. You will restore us to the home that we are a part of God and we can wait confidently for that day. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.